We actually come to a passage today that we have studied in fairly recent history. A little over a year ago, actually, I chose it sort of as a, a filler passage. We were coming off of a break of the summer, and we had a guest speaker coming, and uh, rather than kick our Hebrew study back up, I chose to teach on these five verses. And so we've actually looked at these in depth, uh, like I said, over a year ago. But then also, I use this as a sort of a launching springboard passage to teach on spiritual warfare at the Teach the Word conference back in a spring of last year. So these verses will probably be familiar to you. However, this is the first time we're coming to them as a church after having studied uh, it in context. We've actually come from studying chapters 1, 2, and 3, and so I think you'll find it to be a richer study today for you, uh, understanding where Paul is coming from. When last we met, we looked at the great mission and message of the church. That was found in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3. The mission is to uphold divine truth. That is the mission of the church. Divine truth has been revealed to us through God's word, and we're to be the pillar and ground of the truth. We're to be the support, the foundation of divine truth. It doesn't originate with the church. We don't create it. We simply uphold and defend that which has already been revealed as divine truth through God's holy word. And Paul gave us a, a sample. He gave us a little, little sample of divine truth with a basic message of the church. He calls it the mystery of godliness there in verse 16. The mystery of godliness is the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery of godliness because Christ is the key to godly conduct, which is what Paul has been talking about in the last two chapters. The godly conduct of men and of women and of leaders in the church and of deacons. He's, he's talked about godly conduct. Jesus makes godly conduct possible. Without the truth of Christ, we can never become saved, but we also can never become the godly in Christ. You must have him. Many people have tried over the centuries to to achieve godliness through other means. And that's exactly what Paul is going to attack here. Don't listen to those people who say, this is the path to godliness. We don't earn God's favor. Christ came so that we could know the love of of God through his sacrificial death. We might experience divine grace. And through that process of accepting that gift, understand the path of godliness, which actually comes through him. It doesn't come through technically what I do or don't do. And we're going to dive into that uh, today. So Paul closed their, their uh, verse 16 with a, a wonderful six-line hymn. If you were here last week, we looked at it. It would have been an old early church creed or a song, and it proclaims divine truth, really the essentials of divine truth that all true believers should adhere to. In verse 16, he said, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. That speaks of the revelation of Christ through his incarnation coming as uh, in the form of, of, of a man, and also his resurrection. You have to be, but believe in those two things to be truly born again. You have to believe that Christ came, took on the form of man, that he's fully God and fully man, that he lived a sinless life and he died a death, that he didn't stay in the grave, that he rose from the dead. We also see that it says he was seen by angels and preached among the Gentiles. It speaks of those who witnessed this, those who witnessed his divinity. It's the, the two realms, the supernatural realm. The, world, the supernatural realm is the, the realm of angels, uh, of, of spiritual beings. God is a spirit. We, we can't see him. We can't see angels. 
but it speaks about the, 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 the natural realm, the, the, the realm of men. Both heaven and earth testify, have witnessed to the divinity of Christ. Men witnessed his miraculous birth, his miracles, his miraculous resurrection from the dead. And finally, that little song there says he was believed on in the world and received up in glory. It speaks of those who received him. All you have to do is do a little history uh, study, which I know the world is trying to erase, but, but uh, you will find that millions of people all over the world for centuries have received Christ. He was received by many all over the world, and he was received in glory, and that's where he sits today, at the right hand of the Father. Those are just simply some examples of divine truth that the church is to defend and to proclaim. And the early church fought hard to defend biblical truth. They, were, they worked hard to, to sort of get it down and, and, and what, what is, what is the, the foundational things? What are those things? And what are we going to defend? And the reality is, is that no matter what time period you find yourself in, there will always be people who see the truth as truth. Uh, they, will, they will believe the truth is truth and yet depart from the truth. The Bible defines those people as apostates. And this passage deals with apostasy. And it comes from the word that we see here in verse 1. If you just look at verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Depart from there is a feastemi, and it means to fall away or withdraw oneself from or to shun. It, it, it is not an accidental thing. You don't accidentally fall away from the faith. It is purposefully done. It's a decision to remove oneself from a position originally occupied to a, another position. It is the same word we saw in Hebrews chapter 3 in our study. Hebrews 3.12 says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Departing from the living God comes from an evil heart of unbelief. The stronger uh, is stronger than the term that was used back in the beginning of our study here in 1 Timothy in, in dealing with some of these people who are in the church. In verse 6, back in chapter 1, he says that they have turned aside. They've turned aside. And in, and in verse 19, he said they suffered shipwreck, speaking of those two men, Hymenaeus and, um, and Alexander. But this is a stronger term. If me means a purposeful, deliberate departure from a former position. So spiritually, it refers to people who may become um, very close, very close to receiving the truth, only to depart from it. Hebrews talked a lot about that. You're sailing past the harbor of salvation. Don't drift away. Come, come in. The parable of the soils is a good description of that Jesus told that parable. He spoke about these seeds that were being scattered onto different soils. You, you see these seeds that fall by the wayside, and we, we learn that the devil snatches the seed from the heart of the person before they have a chance to believe or to truly receive it and become saved. So apostate, they're not people struggling to believe. They've been given all the information they, they need. They just willfully then reject it, willfully abandon it even though they may have once professed to believe in it. We see all kinds of examples of this in Scripture. In the Old Testament, there is a king in Judah. His name was Amaziah. 
And in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, I'll just read it to you, verse 2, you see that it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. If you read through the Chronicles, you read through the Kings, you always see that they did what was right or they did what was wrong. Well, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart, it says. So he was going through the motions. He was doing the right things, but his heart was not really in it. So he had not truly received it. He had not truly accepted. And you start to see his falling away a few verses later, verse 14. Now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. It was no big deal for him to begin to worship other gods. And certainly we see the end of his life, and he is assassinated at the end of his life. Falling away is complete. In the New Testament, we only have to look at Judas Iscariot, do we not? We certainly see someone who pretended to believe it, pretended to follow it, received it as far as we could tell, but truly never really received it. Demas is another one that's given a, a, a face to apostasy in 2 Timothy. Um, he is mentioned. But even in our own passage here, those two mentioned in the chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Hymenius and Alexander, they were apostates, and Paul had to specifically, physically reject them and cast them out of the church. And he says that they had rejected concerning the faith. So at one point, they were of the faith, at least they had professed that, and then they had rejected it. So this is a, a book, a letter to a young pastor trying to help him to understand how to deal with such a thing in the church. Um, it's a cha challenging task because there's false doctrine, and that has to be challenged, it has to be eradicated, because proper worship must be safeguarded, strong, mature leadership established. And that's why we have this wonderful book. And so in these, these first five verses of chapter 4, we're going to see really five features of apostasy. So let's look at the passage, and then we'll begin to dig in. It's verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Let me pray. Lord, we just come to you today understanding the great privilege we have to be in your word, to study it, to hear from you. This is your truth, Lord, and so we pray that the great revealer of truth, your Holy Spirit, would be amongst us, Lord, that you would illuminate truth to our hearts. We pray for, Lord, deep, honest understanding of what is being talked about here and the danger of, of straying from the truth that you have revealed to us. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our time in your word today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, let's just jump into this. I have five, five features, so really five points on an outline here. And the first is its certainty. It's certainty, the certainty of apostasy, in other words. And if you look back at verse 1, it says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. It does sadden us. Um, it should. Um, it does outrage us. It should when we see people who, who claim to be uh, believers who, who turn and go the other way, but it should never shock us or surprise us. 
because the Bible simply says here it's inevitable. It's certain that that will happen. In fact, Paul, you might remember, we've looked at this passage a few times. He talked to the Ephesian elders, the elders of this church, and he warned them about this very thing. In Acts 20, 28 to 30, he said, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. He said here, for I, I know this. He doesn't say, uh, I, I just think this might happen, so just be ready. I know it. I know that this is going to happen. And what else did he know? That from among yourselves. What's he saying there? From within the church. People who professed it. He says, these are apostates. They're going to be in the church. They're going to come out, and they're going to declare perverse things in order to draw away disciples after themselves. Men will rise, he says. Not that they might, they will. It's going to happen. Now, how did Paul know that? Did he receive some uh, maybe special divine revelation regarding that? Well, I think he gives us the answer. Now, the Spirit expressly says. What's that mean? Well, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. And certainly the Old Testament canon was well established by Paul's day. He would have been a, a, a firm student of it. He would have known of the examples of Amaziah, like I just read. He would have seen apostasy through ancient Israel all along the way. He would have understood how this worked. The Holy Spirit expressly has given us examples of apostate throughout Scripture. I'll take you to a New Testament example. This is in the book of Jude. It's the second to last book. If you just turn, uh, right-hand turn to the second to last book, so the last book is Revelation, so it's right before that. It's a small little book called Jude. We studied this a number of years ago. It's just a small 25-verse uh, letter, and the entire letter is all about apostates. It's about a warning uh, about apostasy, that they're in the church. Second Peter is very similar. Second Peter warns the church that they're coming. Jude writes to say they're here. They're here. They're in the church. And here in this letter, he warns the church to earnestly contend for the faith. He said it's going to be a battle. You're going to have to fight for the faith. In verse 3, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. You're going to have to fight for the faith. Why? What's happening? Look at verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Long ago, these men were marked out for condemnation. They snuck in, they crept into the church, but long ago, they were condemned. What's he, what's he mean by that? What's he talking about there? Well, just as I mentioned, the, the, the Old Testament gives us all kinds of examples of how God dealt with apostates. And God has always dealt with apostates. And Jude goes on to explain and give examples of that very thing. He gives us examples in the following verses of apostate Israelites. He gives us examples in the following verses of apostate angels. Yes, and even apostate Gentiles. The Spirit expressly warned against apostasy all throughout the Old Testament. 
And so the apostles in the New Testament who wrote much of the New Testament also warned about apostasy. It would make sense because the Spirit spoke through them as well. In fact, just look at verses 17 through 19 of Jude. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. There he calls them mockers. So certainly, we, we understand this, that Paul understood the Spirit speaking through the apostles, speaking through the Old Testament, that there have always been apostates. It's nothing new. And he had warned the Ephesian elders and said, they're going to arise up from among you. So the, the, the truth of it is that it's certain. It's always going to be present in our world. It's sad, but true. So that's one feature. The second feature is very interesting. It's, it's timing. The timing of it. Look, go back to verse 1. It says uh, in our passage of 1 Timothy, reading that verse 1 again, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. So there it says that in latter times. Paul defines the time frame in which apostasy would take place to be latter times. And what are the latter times? Well, we've talked about this a bit. You should know by this point, Christ ushered in the latter times or the last days. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, he, in, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. We are in the last times for sure, but Christ ushered those times in. So ever since the days of Christ, we've been living in the last days. A lot of people talk about the last days, oh, we're in the last days, and I always say, yeah, we are. We've been there for 2,000 years. So we're, we're in the last days. It's the last times. Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. They were the last days then, and they're the last days now. In fact, John writes in 1 John 2.18, he even gives more specific here. He says, little children, it's the last hour. <laughs> and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So apostasy has always existed. It's always been expected, and it has been expected to be around in the latter times. Having said that, we do know that apostasy, though, is meant to sort of escalate as we get closer to the Lord's return. More and more apostasy should be evident if, if Christ's uh, predictions are true. And Jesus warned us of one of those predictions, that's that many would be deceived by false Christs or other ways to salvation, you could say. Matthew 24, 4-5, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Peter and Jude warned about mockers who would depart from the faith in the last days. And in 2 Peter 3, 3, he says this, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Paul warned of the falling away that would take place during the future time, the time of tribulation. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So it certainly exists today, but it's going to escalate as we near the return of Christ. And 
I have to say, we're, I think we're living in unprecedented times. You, you, you look around and so many people are departing from just the very basic truths that we've all uh, largely accepted throughout human history. They're all over the place on issues of morality and identity and purpose, truth, knowledge. Their belief about these things, you, you look into them, it really has no foundation. But we build our understanding of the world and these things on the foundation of God's word, divine truth. So naturally, you would expect to see people to be all over the place because there is no foundation. Romans tells us why that is true. It tells us in Romans chapter 1 that everyone knows that God exists, everyone knows about his law, and everyone knows about his judgment. That's what Romans 1 reveals about every single person on the planet. They know he exists, they know about his law, they know about his judgment. But the reason they deny those things is because they, they love their sin. And because they love their sin and they, they hate God, and because of that, they fear his judgment. That's just a truth that Scripture reveals about everyone. And so they deny then all the truths that God has made known to us, even some of the basic, most obvious regarding our biology. We are born either a man or a woman. Genetically, you're either XY or you're XX, and that's it. But we're all over the place with these things, and I believe this is really a part of a greater apostasy because even churches are now beginning to uh, adopt some of these beliefs. We've strayed so far from the truth. So the timing of it being in the last days, I certainly see it escalating as we near the return of Christ, which is good news for his church. Thirdly, let's notice its source. Where does all this come from? I mean, is this all coming from the big media organizations? Is this coming from some hidden agenda government somewhere holed up in some mountain? Where is this all coming from? We'll look at verse 1 again. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, here it is, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The source ultimately is demonic. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that these things, these, these ideas are generated from demonic beings. Ephesians 6.12 supports that. It says, Paul writes this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's not our enemies, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It is ultimately fallen angels who are energizing all of false religion. Ultimately, it's demonic activity behind these things. The Bible tells us then that when people worship idols, they're in reality worshiping the demons that are behind the idols. That's the reality of Scripture. God was instructing the Israelites in the Old Testament to begin to bring their offerings, to bring their sacrifices right to the door of the tabernacle because they used to take them somewhere else. In Leviticus 17, 7, he says, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generation. They were, they were caught up in the, the idol worship of the Egyptians for years in slavery. God had to take them out and teach them, no, no, I am alone, your God. Here's my Ten Commandments. This is how you worship me, and this is how you honor me. And what you used to do is used to honor demons. You used to worship them. 
In Psalm 106, verses 36 to 37, it says, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. It's true that Israelites got caught up in, in child sacrifice. They did it to the, these evil gods, but he says, but behind those things was demonic activity, ultimately. 1 Corinthians 10, 20, so a New Testament verse says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. The problem is that apostates, what they ultimately are doing is they're giving heed to doctrines of demons. Giving heed to, that word there is very important. It's prosecco. We've already seen this word in our um, previous chapters, but it means to cling to or to devote oneself to. So it's not a casual hearing. People aren't just sort of hearing these things on the by and then sort of getting deceived. These are people who are exposed to demonic heresy, but then attach themselves to that. They cling to it. And when you do, you attach yourself to a deceiving spirit. That's what this passage tells us. That word deceiving is planos. It's where we get our word planet. It means wandering, roving. That's exactly the description of our world. There's no foundation. It's just a bunch of wandering um, ideologies and philosophies and ideas that have no foundation in any kind of truth. Man's ideas originating in the, eye, the, the minds of demons. The nature of the teaching then is corrupt and it's deceitful. That's why the church is to be what? The pillar and ground of the truth. You see how this relates so much more to what we've been studying. In John, uh, 1 John 2, 7, he um, gives a warning about apostates there and he uses a very similar word. And it's a lengthy section, but I just want you to see what he writes about here. 2 uh, John 1, 7 to 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds." You see, there's deceivers, and he says the deceivers have the spirit of Antichrist. Well, what's the Antichrist? This is a demonically energized being. In the end times, there will be a figurehead that will be the Antichrist. But he says the spirit of Antichrist is all over the place. And the spirit is deception, to deceive. They don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, but we, we are to abide in the doctrine of Christ. We don't wander in Rome and, and all over these different, these new doctrines, this new doctrine, this new thought. It's all deception. We're to avoid those things or we share in the evil deeds, we're told. And, you know, the deception is effective. Many people are getting caught into it, aren't they? That's because, like their evil master, these demons are able to disguise themselves as angels of light. Satan appears that way. There's not... Uh, horned beings appearing to people and saying, I want you to teach this. They appear differently. In fact, what demons do is they just simply use human agents. And that's what this passage tells us as well. It gives us its promoters. So we see the sources is really demonic, but the promoters, the agents that they use are, are human. Look at verse 2. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared, with a hot iron. 
So while the source is supernatural, demons inspire it, the agents are natural, it's humans. It's humans who promote these false ideologies, these demonic heresies. That phrase, speaking lies in hypocrisy, literally means hypocritical lie speakers. So hypocrites are actors. They're people who put on a front. That's what hypocrite is. That's what the word means. They're people in masks. They're masquerading. And they're lying. That's where it comes from. And these are people that are all over the place. They're religious leaders. They're pastors. They're in universities. They're in schools. They're in the media. They're all over the place. They're speaking hypocritical lies. And once people have devoted themselves to the demonic doctrines, then they become promoters of those doctrines. And people get swept up in it. They get included in it. But the church is to be separate from the world and to build its truth off of divine truth and not the truth of the world. And so that's why 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 17, Paul writes this, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. Well, there's that Hymenius guy appearing uh, one more time. He obviously uh, had a big part of all this false teaching that was taking place in Ephesus because Paul's mentioned him twice. How are these teachers able to go about their demonic business? How are they able to do that without any restraint? Well, we're told that their consciences have been seared, cauterized, causte riadzo. It's where we get our word cauterized. That your conscience is that faculty God has given you that confirms or uh, uh, condemns your actions as right or wrong, good or evil. It's a sensitivity to right or wrong behavior. And their consciences have so been ignored, so misinformed, that they become, become like scar tissue. They're just senseless. They, they cease to function. They feel no guilt. They feel no remorse. And Paul has already pinpointed the conscience in this passage about a, being a vital component of avoiding the doctrines of demons. Look back at verse 19 of chapter 1, if you will. He says, "...having faith and a good conscience..." which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. And then he goes on to mention, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander. See, they rejected their conscience. So their faith has suffered shipwreck. And he gives two examples. In Ephesians chapter 4, we have a great description of what this is like. In verses 17 to 19, This I say, therefore, testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's our world today. They're ignoring their, their conscience on so many things, things that are blatantly right or wrong and they're searing their consciences, and they're giving heed to these demonic doctrines, and because they're doing that, they're just past feeling, just deadened nerves, and so they speak uh, lies. What kind of lies are being spoken? I gave you some examples today, but let's look at the, the example Paul gives us. You might think he'd go on to say, they deny the Trinity. Uh, they deny the deity of Christ. No, actually, Satan's much more subtle. Look at its content. 
There's another feature of apostasy. And here's the content in verse 3. It's very interesting. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. That's what was going on. Avoid marriage, avoid certain kinds of foods. Now, this is typical. What Satan does is that when these things are presented, they have certain uh, elements of truth sometimes. Although I think in the world today, a lot of that's just, they don't even care about that anymore. But as you look at these things, it, there's some truth here. There's nothing wrong with singleness. In fact, Paul states that it may aid spiritual service. You go back to 1 Corinthians 7, you can read that. There's certainly nothing wrong with abstaining from certain foods or fasting for a period. It can be uh, important, uh, 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 like important uh, accompaniment to prayer even. But these things are, are not deceiving in themselves. The deception comes that when they're taught that they are necessary for salvation or necessary for godliness. And this is what's been the topic of the last couple chapters, godly conduct godly conduct. Now listen, all false religions have devised a human merit system of salvation, doing some kind of good works. Tick these boxes and then God accepts you. Christianity stands alone. That is not the case. You don't tick any boxes to get to heaven. There's not a don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. I think I've told you the story before, but I was at a funeral of my, my grandfather and my aunts and uncles were there and one of, the, one of the uncles got up and gave a little speech and I always knew this about that family. They were Christian on the outside, if that makes sense. They always had gone to church and he said, so you many of you know we're Christian. We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't curse and that's how he defined Christianity. And I overheard someone asking him after the service saying, so is that what Christians is it about? It's about what you don't do, so you don't drink. You don't. He's like, yeah, that's what it is. That's how he answered. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. To him, it was, I don't do these things, and God accepts me. I want to tell you that's false religion. Don't get caught up in that. And we're given such a great example here. You can go back and look at animism of primitive tribes even, to the sophisticated major world religions. They all rely on some sort of outward system of good works. None of that works. In Colossians chapter 2, in fact, you want to turn there really briefly. It's a left-hand turn, uh, a really short one from where we are, just a few pages in my Bible. Colossians chapter 2. Paul actually pinpoints what the issue is here to the Colossians, beginning in verse 16. They had a similar thing going on in terms of what they did or didn't eat or uh, what days they had uh, looked at and, and, and held in honor. And here he says in verse 16, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking the delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. That's the church. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? 
do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of, and mark this, no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What's he speaking about there? What's he speaking about in our passage? Asceticism. That has been tried, hasn't it? The scenes, the monks, they, they tried those things. If we just remove ourselves from the world and we go where the world can't get us, then we'll be godly and we'll sort of please God and we'll get to him. We'll be away from alcohol. We'll be away from the temptations of the world. Here's the problem with that. You're not away from you. You still take you. You're the problem. Your heart is the problem. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man, it's what comes out. He says, it's what's in to begin with. It's your heart. And wherever you go, you take your heart with you. And if you don't, then you're dead. <laughs> That's the problem. Asceticism looks good on the outside. Did you see what he says? It has an appearance of false humility. Oh, look how humble I am. I have excluded these things from my life. It gets you nothing. I love Colossians ends with, you are complete in him. You don't need these things. It's not about do not do this and do that, do that. Listen, you don't need to practice self-denial to gain salvation because it can't give you that. Now, is there wisdom in avoiding certain things? Well, yes, of course, there is wisdom that can be applied, but it doesn't make you saved. We do those things. We apply wisdom to the, because we are saved. We recognize what can be harmful to us and what can lead us away from Christ. And that's what chapter 3 of Colossians is all about. He, he says that on chapter 2, and then chapter 3 is, if you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is. And that's when he says, so put off these things. You don't need these things anymore. That's when he says, um, don't, don't do these, these things. Put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. He says, you don't need to practice those things anymore because you belong to a different kingdom. So that's all he's saying there. Reminds me of that passage in 2 Timothy 3, 5. The people who teach these things, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. There's actually no power there. It sounds good. Oh, yes, if I just don't do these things, then I look really spiritual to people. And I feel real spiritual. And so if I feel real spiritual, I look real spiritual, then by golly, God must think I'm really spiritual. Isn't that true? You know what? He, he knows you are a hypocrite. He knows you're putting on the mask. He knows your heart. The content is always deceptive. It always leads you away from fully relying on what Christ has done. You are godly in position because of what Christ has done. He knows we're sinners. He knows we're not perfect. He knows you can't uh, earn salvation. But when you accept his free gift, you are saved and you are godly. It's an amazing. It's the mystery of godliness. Paul says it's just a mystery. How can God be that good? We should be thanking Jesus. Absolutely. So that's the content. Let's look at one more thing about this, and it's the error. And it's the rest of our passage. Go back to 1 Timothy it's verses 3 to the end. 
So he says, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods, those are the things that they teach, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for to sanctify by the word of God and prayer. Here's the, the error that this tells us that God created both of the things that these people were teaching to avoid. He created marriage. He created food. That's the fundamental error of apostate teaching. It rejects the truth of the word of God. If you're ever presented with, this is the system, this is the way, go back and check it with the word of God. Does it line up? Contrary to the, the false teaching that plagued Ephesus, God created marriage. He created food, and he pronounced both of them, if you might remember this, good. That's right. In Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Jesus, in the New Testament, declared that all foods were, were clean. In Mark 7.18, he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. It's not about the food. What a man eats does not have anything to do with his heart except for cholesterol. But other than that, marriage and food are good, is what he's saying. God created marriage and food to be, note what he says, received with thanksgiving. So that, then, how can it be right to deny them to men? to his creation. God made marriage. He made food for the same reason he made everything else. What is the reason he made all of these things? To give man joy and to give glory to himself. That's the reason we have these things. And 1 Corinthians sorry, 10, 31 says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We can do all to the glory of God. We can eat what we want to eat. Now, notice that it says in our passage, it's to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Unbelievers enjoy marriage and food, don't they? They do. But what they don't do is fulfill its ultimate intention, which is to bring glory to God. God gives these gifts to us, and, and, and our enjoyment of them is so that we might praise him for those things. We fulfill the intention for which those things were created in the first place. I thank God for my wonderful marriage to my wife. I thank God for the wonderful Christmas ham she made on Christmas. You know, I thank God for my wife who made the ham. I, I just... Every creature of God is good, he says here. Deceivers deny the goodness of God's creation. They say these things are bad or this is bad. That, was, that goes way back to the Gnostics, doesn't it? The spirit is good, but the flesh is bad. So everything that has to do with your flesh, we must abstain from those things. But God says it's all good. Nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. Paul emphasizes the purpose in giving good things to men. Their enjoyment of those gifts brings him praise. So we can receive the things that God has created for our enjoyment because it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. I'll end with this. Sanctified there, set apart, okay, holy. That's what that means. So everything is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So let me just give you an example. Um, when is sex wrong? When it takes place outside the context of marriage. When is drinking alcohol wrong? When you get drunk. But see what people do on the extremes, don't you? And so we must simply just see what God's word says. No, this is good when it takes place in this setting. No, this is good when you exercise restraint in how much you drink. You see, it's just a, a understanding what God presents here and how it is to be used. 
Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. You know there's people in church today that believe they shouldn't get married, that marriage was of the Old Testament and people shouldn't get married. I just think, uh, where are they getting this stuff from? Doctrines of demons. Ephesians 5.18, speaking out about drinking, says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is disp- dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Dissipation just means riotous living or out-of-control uh, living. All right? So you can have a, a drink of alcohol when it's received with thanksgiving and self-control, which is a fruit of what? The Spirit. Yeah. So when we honor the Lord's Word, we receive all things He's created with thanksgiving, and we give glory to Him. Those are just two examples of the subtle ways in which apostates try to lure people away. He just gives those two examples there. But it really can be any teaching, any teaching that's contrary to God's word. And it's in some form of externalism. All right, you, you, you can know it's not from God if you see it that way. Oh, we got to stop doing this. We got to stop saying this. We got to stop these things. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't promote spirituality. We got to check these things against God's word. I'll close with Hebrews 13, 9. It says this. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who've been occupied with them. We're established by grace. We're saved by grace. It's all about grace. And you know what? We live the Christian life by grace. Grace doesn't just come at salvation. It's grace all the life long way, all the way to eternity. Don't be deceived by the great deception that is in our world today. The church is to be the pillar and ground of truth, and on that we will stand, and we're not going to budge. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word to us today. We thank you, Lord, that you make it so clear, Lord, how to avoid false teaching. You make it clear the dangers that all, our, all around us. We can just see it in our world today. Lord, we just know so many are, are deceived by the, the teachings that are really, Lord, so pervasive and, and even infiltrating the churches today. I pray that you protect your church. I pray that you would reignite a passion for your word in your church, that, Lord, they would stand strong and true to be the pillar and ground of the truth that you've called us to. Lord, yes, you desire that we live godly lives. Conduct has been much of what Paul's been talking about here, but that comes by grace, that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. So I pray that you give wisdom to your people. We do want to honor you with our lives. We don't want to do things that displease you. Your word makes that very clear what those things are. But Lord, help protect us from any, any form of asceticism any sort of works-based system or idea that has gotten to our heads. Lord, protect your people. We want to live freely in the grace that you've given us to honor you, to glorify you. And in that, Lord, may we defend your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.